0: On this episode of the Cutting Edge Podcast, how colleges guide students navigating travel delays.
1: They have the real-time data to know that these alerts are happening on the ground, but they're getting to a place where they can actually give them the scenarios of, okay, here's how we get you from A to B, here's how we may have to put you up for the night, depending on where you are, Um, and then all of the reporting that helps with that.
0: And how UMass Global is planning to review technology to reach more students.
1: Being able to automate
2: that and get to that level of on-demand outreach, not, in, not taking and receiving requests from, from students is going to be critical to the to the ability to do this at scale because it's not economically feasible to do it at the scale we want to be at with individual advisors.
0: I'm your host, Emily Bamforth, and this is The Cutting Edge where we discuss what's next in higher ed information technology and online learning with the people driving change. Global tech giant Siemens announced plans to acquire Brightly, a software company that designs building automation and monitoring systems. Brightly is a prominent vendor in the education space, claiming 7,000 clients. Siemens plans to integrate Brightly's tools with its own smart infrastructure offerings. The City University of New York has a new CIO for its 25 colleges. Eusebio Formoso previously served as CIO for the city's finance department, where he led modernization for tax systems and other digital services. CUNY's CIO oversees a central office and consults with a committee of campus IT leaders on overall strategy. The Department of Education filed settlement documents in Northern California Federal District Court that would cancel $6 billion in student loans. Borrowers who attended schools the department found misled students or committed misconduct filed a class action suit in 2019 to push along decisions on their loans. The list of schools in the suit include prominent online and for-profit schools, including the University of Phoenix and DeVry University. Find all these stories and more on edscoop.com. As travel delays continue to make headlines, many institutions are in the process of restarting their study abroad programs, said Anthony Ritoli, the CEO of software company Teradata. The company makes software that helps track students through the study abroad process and then communicate with them once abroad. Retolia explains what features universities want to reach students while they're navigating travel.
1: Institutions have an extremely important role because ultimately their responsibility, right, is part of making sure that there's duty of care for those students that are traveling anywhere, not just necessarily abroad but domestically, you know, as well. Um, The interesting thing, though, is as travel has started to come back over the last, let's call it, you know, six to nine months, a lot has changed in how you handle duty of care for, especially the student based travelers, faculty, staff as well, but for the student based travelers. What we've seen now coming out of the pandemic was that there's been a really a rapid shift towards the evolution of travel and what that means for the institutions, because there's a lot of pent up demand for the students to go away because they haven't been able to, you know, over the last couple of years. And what we've seen is that the institutions not only are trying to maximize their global footprint, but at the same time, they have to put in other management processes to help with things like, restrictions on health and safety that didn't exist before, um, so that they have a better end-to-end experience with the student when they're traveling, especially abroad, or even here to the United States, um, so that they can actually get all the reporting and the data in real time, where in the past, it was more of a, hey, yeah, that's great, they're over there, you know, we'll look at it afterwards, because they were looking at very basic guidelines, like the CDC guidelines didn't exist before the State Department's guidelines. So in the past, it was all about State Department guidelines and not looking at what CDC or even city or local um, guidelines were in place. So there's a lot more to manage around this than historically happened, you know, about two, two and a half years ago. So there's lots of things that we can kind of dive into, but that at a very high level, there's just more things that they're assessing from a risk level that didn't exist a couple of years ago.
0: Absolutely. Let's dig a little bit into that pent-up demand. Uh, Teradata released some software that is a little bit easier to implement Mm -hmm. uh, for institutions who are, you know, looking to get something quickly into place. And uh, the company also asked institutions what they're looking for um, and what they're seeing in terms of their student travel. Can you talk a little bit about some of the feedback, both in that survey and, and from those customers are now trying to get as many students as they can handle abroad.
1: Yeah. So let's start, let's use the student survey that we published out, you know, a month or so ago. We've done some other, you know, institutional surveys as well, which has helped it to, you know, to your point on the pent up demand there. So the reason we did it was we wanted to understand the student perspective from what's happened over the last two years because of all the restrictions and all the lockdowns and really get a good feeling for what did they think about studying abroad, right? Not necessarily the international students coming to the U.S., which we do as well, but really the prospect of them leaving the United States and going somewhere else, right? There's a comfort level. You're here. You kind of know what's going on. So what we saw in the surveys was very interesting because I think it blew our mind a little bit with how much of that pent up demand existed. So what we saw was is that we had an extreme level of interest of any student wanting to really travel again uh, because they didn't have the experience that they went to university for in the first place, which was part of getting that cultural engagement part. Um, And they were evaluating schools when they went there based on what their global engagement programs were. And what we saw in there, though, even at the time of the survey, there were still some underlying concerns with COVID. Uh, the vast majority of students were ready to get on with life and would manage the risks accordingly with some you know, guidance in place uh, to allow them to really go ahead and take part in these things that they went in the first place to the university for. So what we saw were things like um all of the attitudes coming out of the pandemic were we're ready to go because we haven't gone in the last couple of years. We saw the lion's share of incoming students, like the first year students were saying, yep, we're going over the next four years. Like, And that was like 98% of those students said that, which tells you that's like a significant amount of this is coming back. Um, and then what we also saw was that in part of all of this, there were a lot of questions around how, Am I going to be communicated to by the university? How are they going to help me manage my in-country resources that were probably more so than we've saw, seen, you know, historically when we were using, you know, the tools and the institutions were using our tools. So what that meant was is we had an opportunity, right, to to kind of help the institutions with better ways to communicate, talk to, navigate this new world that was there and, and put the processes in place to support them.
0: Can you talk about some of the processes, both from the institutional side, what administrators are looking for to help them keep track of everything that's going on? I would imagine that both on the student end and on the administrator and keeping track of all the changing policies, um, testing requirements, that kind of thing is, is a huge load on them. And, and then some of how that manifests on the student end, who th- these students are navigating just a very complicated travel environment.
1: Yes. yeah, and I think that's probably the best way to put it. Complicated travel environment is the the, the best way to sum this up because if you look at things that are going on now with travel that did not exist you know prior, there's look, there's always canceled flights. There's always delays. There's always luggage lost. I can tell you all my stories of all of those things over my years, including um, almost luggage lost at NAFSA a couple of weeks ago. And I really thought I was going shopping, but didn't happen. Um, I ended up getting it back. But based on what we've had conversations with the institutions about is that they know that all of these things exist, right? So they need to be able to have the tools to manage the fact that Flights are going to change. People are going to have to be moved, right? We learned this early on, you know, in COVID. Um, and you know what basically has happened is our institutional partners really started to take a look at our complete platform solution set for how they can integrate it into their travel policy, right? And this was a core component to all of this because you said it earlier, right? The students are not as savvy travelers as some of us that have been doing this you know for longer than we want to admit and what what's happened is is that if you have these tools like that we have our enterprise travel registry our alert traveler application integrated into the booking tools when things are happening on the ground they have the real time data now to be able to act to um, to the student level so you know, an experience is where you get stuck somewhere, right? They have the real-time data to know that these alerts are happening on the ground, but they're getting to a place where they can actually give them the scenarios of, okay, here's how we get you from A to B. Here's how we may have to put you up for the night, depending on where you are. Um, And then all of the reporting that helps with that. So there's lots of ways to do this. And, you know, we can go through how do you kind of minimize some of those uh, complications, if you will, And this is a very detailed process that we go through with our customers, to you know, and the institutions we work with, to walk them through the levels, right? So, when you're looking at these different levels, Emily, it's first you got to look at the country, right? The country intelligence and whatever information you have there. As I mentioned earlier, you know, we didn't prior to that really look at things like CDC guidelines. We were looking at Department of State. Well, that's all well and good up front, you know, but when you're starting to prepare for a trip, like, do they know what emergency information they need to dial if there's a scenario now where they get sick, right? As opposed to before, it was more about like, hey, we knew there was a safety risk, you know, there. Um, and being able to have all of that country intelligence and that emergency information at their fingertips was super important out of schools. Because as you start to build in the itinerary level information with the integrations, um, with our applications and the booking tools, you actually can start being much more proactive uh, in how you help manage that. And there's a lot of details there we can go through.
0: Yeah, I wanted to dig into to two aspects there. The first being bridging uh, Teradata systems with booking systems, mm-hmm. other proprietary systems that um, these institutions may have been using for quite some time. What does that look like? What flow of information needs to mm-hmm. happen there. Yep. And also um, how difficult is that to implement or is Teradata really coming in and, and saying, here, we can put something here that can make everything flow smoothly?
1: Yeah. So our, our goal is to make it very smooth for the institution so that they don't have to think about heavy integrations or things like that into third-party systems that they may have been using. There's a lot of different booking you know, systems out there to book travel, uh, and we integrate with all of those, right? And we basically do it. It's literally minutes, if not hours worth of work that we do just to make sure that we have communication on two ways of flow, right? One is itineraries, right? We want to make sure that an itinerary is coming in and that it goes through the proper workflows up front, right? So we have all of our workflow system for these types of trips. So if you're booking a flight from, you know, the United States to London, what is the process it needs to go through? Who needs to approve it, right? Is it within guidelines? You know, all of those kind of things are built into the system. And that all comes in directly based on the flights and the choices and the hotels and, you know, everything you pick. So if you pick the wrong thing, you know, we have the, the ability to help guide saying, hey, this is where the program is. You're going to be in the wrong location, right? So you send it back through workflow to, uh, to handle those things. So that's the one way flow in. The other flow part is, on our system it may not have been booked through the booking tools so we allow for the traveler to go in and put things like side trips and stuff in the information and that data flows back to the administrators at the the institution so that they are aware at all times where these travelers are and in particular the students because I've not heard of many programs that have gone on without students going on a side trip, you know, somewhere. And we all do it, right? We do it in our professional, you know, lives as well. But we also have the ability to track via push notifications or GPS um, in there. So if institutions are looking and want to be proactive with the students and, you know, there are flight delays or there are other travel safety risks, the tools have the integrations to be able to do that and report on it in real time. So we will notify the institution of those risks that are going on so that they can act immediately, which in most booking tools, right? If you're just booking a trip, you don't get any of that information. And that's where Teradata's integration to make it really seamless comes in so that we can help manage that entire process for the institution.
0: Yeah, it's really those those alerts and making sure people are on top of things. But on the student end, this is the other thing I wanted Mm -hmm. to look at. How does Teradata work with institutions to cut through some of the noise Mm -hmm. on the student end? Because I can imagine in the case of a cancellation, they're getting alerts from Mm -hmm. their airline. They're getting alerts all over the place, email, push notifications, (laughs) alerts from their school, alerts from Teradata. How do you make that less overwhelming to someone who is already in a stressful situation and make sure they read the right ones.
1: Yeah, no. So that's, that's the, the idea of where Alert Traveler, you know, came into. So Alert Traveler, our mobile app, which integrates in with our outgoing platform, which is, you know, like the study abroad tools, as well as this enterprise travel registry is meant for exactly that to cut down on all the noise that you may get. So it's a centralized, mobile app to get all of your alerts and notifications, but also to be able to interact with your institution directly so you can communicate through one place as opposed to, to your point, right, Emily, is like, I've got to go here, I've got to go there, what do I look at? So the mobile app has actually got a couple different things that help aggregate all of this. So incoming to the mobile app is we do take all of these alerts. So I mentioned CDC, I mentioned State Department, but we also go down to all of these other travel related notifications that are coming through. So depending on where we're getting those from integrations and things like that, we'll actually bring those through and it's based on proximity, right? So this is how we start to filter out the noise if you're not in that proximity, those alerts are irrelevant. So if you are in that airport and you're getting these, hey, there's a storm coming, right? And it's going to cause flight delays. We, we only want to narrow you down to where you are as opposed to I'm in the country, it may not even be relevant. So I'm in Madrid, I'm not in Barcelona. So why give me those alerts? So we'll, what we'll do is we'll aggregate those in kind of a proximity um, standpoint. Now it goes through, you know, our algorithm, our our things in the back with our integrations with our partners to do a couple different levels. So we have levels of notifications based on how extreme or not those things are, and you can prioritize those alerts. And there's a couple ways to do it. You can do it via push notification where we have it going directly um, to the students, and you can subscribe to those. You don't have to have them all. But if I'm going to be in Barcelona, I want to subscribe to all the alerts that are coming to me from that region and as well as if you go to another region. So to your point of there's a lot of noise, I don't I, I, I basically cut down on my noise by just saying, hey, just give me these kinds of alerts. So if I'm going to Italy, just give me the ones that are in Venice. Right. So there, there's that part of it. So you've got these proximity based on GPS or itinerary of where you are and you've got your subscriptions to that. So the beauty in this is that we'd start to limit the noise, but the administrators still have the ability to check things on a radius. So if there's something else going on outside of a radius of where these students are, the administrators actually can expand the radius to say, hey, we know that this group might be moving from point A to point B. Like we need to look at where they are in proximity now to these, this radius that's happening. So it gives you the ability to flex you know, back and forth from an administrative control, as well as you know, basically what's happening. Then on top of that, we have detailed city and neighborhood level security um, information based on the exact location you're in. So again, this goes into things like we can tell you the theft rate, we can tell you nighttime safety, physical safety, women's safety, um, your basic freedom, safety, health and medical facility access, LBGTQ plus safety ratings. So that at any point in time, you have the data and notifications normalized in one central place. So you don't have to deal with all the noise. And then, like I said, the institution, if they want to expand or contract some of that information based on where they are and institutions are are using our GPS ability with the application to help as they move from location to location, it takes them out of proximity, puts them into new proximity, alerts them. Uh, And then, you know, what we've also built, Emily, which is one of the exciting things that we launched this year was we actually have uh, built in the ability for, people institutionally whether you're a faculty member a staff member we use it here internally to actually report incidents in real time that might not be alerted yet so uh, if you think about it in what you've seen like of these in-app network uh, type environments we've built in the capability to do proximity alerting based on you know you or i are sitting in an airport and something just happened, right and it hasn't been alerted yet hey i'm in Toronto, or I'm in London, or I'm in somewhere else, flights are getting canceled. So we have the ability to do things like transportation alerts, civil unrest, service disruptions, um, safety that might be happening in real time before the notifications. And what it does is it alerts everybody that's in proximity on the network. So mm-hmm. on Teradata's network, which expands out, you know, this whole footprint.
0: No, that... I, I can only imagine how helpful that might be for, for planning. Um, but as you're having these conversations with institutions and having more students come back mm-hmm. that have had these more pretty well publicized mm-hmm. transportation issues uh, this summer, yeah. uh, what are some of the next steps that institutions are asking for? What are some yeah. of the services that they really need in uh, this situation?
1: So, so the biggest thing is engagement right? Mm -hmm. Is communication tools and engagement for how they can continue to better communicate with anybody. And again, students in particular, but anybody that's, you know, an institutional employee, staff, faculty, et cetera, this is all part of that. Because historically, it was more reactionary, right? So now what they're looking for are more proactive tools to help with the process of when and how people are doing things. And what we've been building is tools to better track and understand the level of effectiveness on the communication efforts, because this is the key that they're looking for is what is the data telling them, right? So if they're getting, again, a little bit more proactive, are they able to attract better programs? Are they able to build out um, better initiatives around DEI, right? That's a big thing that institutions are asking us for is to be able to know like how people are acting, you know, inside of the travel. Um, they ultimately just need a better way to understand if those communications are working or not. And, you know, we can, we all, you know, we're, to your point, we're inundated with lots of pieces of information, text, emails, et cetera. Um, but they want to know that the expectations of the students are being met. And basically, how do you build those tools to be able to provide it? That's one of the big things I'm talking to a lot of institutions about right now.
0: Again, that was Anthony Ritoli of Teradata. You can read more about study abroad administration on edscoop.com. I'm your host, Emily Bamforth, and this is the Cutting Edge Podcast. To make sure you don't miss an episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. On State Scoops' Priorities podcast this week, Michigan State University's Chief Information Officer Melissa Wu discusses the $10.5 million NTIA grant the institution secured to build out the state's middle mile network. MSU is partnering with the Merit Network, a nonprofit that provides statewide high-performance computing access to upgrade service. That's what's so great about it is there's not going to be additional time in trenching and laying fiber. It's just updating the electronics and configuring them, so which is really exciting, which means we can basically, if we use the the interstate analogy more, it means that we can somehow cram more cars onto that interstate without actually widening the interstate, which you can't really do with a true interstate, but we can do with the fiber. Tune in to the Priorities Podcast Thursday to hear more from Wu and how she thinks the higher ed CIO role can approach boost state digital access. You can find it at PrioritiesPodcast.com and wherever you get your shows. The University of Massachusetts acquired Brandman University last year, renaming the California school targeting adult learners to UMass Global. The college named its next chancellor, David Andrews, who previously served as president of National University and led the education school at Johns Hopkins. He shares his plans and how UMass Global is looking to prove the value of going back to school to adult learners.
2: At the top of the to-do list is... um... Being able to seamlessly reach students and support them as we possibly can and it starts with being able to reach them and and explain to them what the opportunities are for them to get back into school and finish their degree. Our focus is on adult learners. Uh, The thing that most of our students have in common is that working adults. Um, and when you're a working adult with a family, your first thought is not how can I add more to my list in terms of going back to school and, and improving your your situation at, at work or your overall life trajectory. So the first step is to, to really take the friction out of understanding what it would take to get back into school and how you think about reengaging uh, in school and getting that credential is going to be valuable. And then the second step is, how do we support students and create an opportunity for them that is predominantly on demand? Uh, That is, how do we reach them where they are and customize to to their needs, uh, recognizing that our students are so different and that one level of customization is not uh, gonna be successful with all students. We have to think about that as a very personalized student-centric approach. And that's always top of my list.
0: Can you talk a little bit about over the past, I, I guess it would be, you know, going on a year now that UMass Global is, is under that name, the institution is not new, and the partnership between UMass and, and Brandman was not new either, but can you talk a little bit about some of the progress that's been made before you were named to this position? What really excited you about taking on the role permanently
2: well, it's a great opportunity, you know, and, and I'm even more excited since I've been in the interim role because I see you know, how dedicated the people are and how committed we are to meeting the needs of, of our students and being student-centric. Uh, you know, we, we did a, a conversion and a, a name change, um, a new uh, identity in the middle of a pandemic uh, when our students were, were not with us face-to-face. Uh, they were not engaging in the same kind of events in the community. so. It took a while to to get the notion that a pretty well respected a very well respected brand in california was now umass global so making that conversion even in california was was challenging and i think there's great opportunities to continue to increase the awareness that what was a very strong brand uh, in brandman university is now umass global uh, but we even have a greater opportunity. I was even more excited about how do we expand the reach uh, beyond California, across the United States, using this highly reputable brand of University of Massachusetts, and then extend that completely outside of the country into other global and international kind of markets. So the opportunity is is a vast opportunity to grow, uh, and there's an appetite from our Board of Regents to continue to grow to serve more students, uh, and it was a great, exciting opportunity to stay with.
0: Uh, Let's dig into the first part of your answer there, which was talking about communicating with students at Bremen and just kind of explaining to them what's happening. And then under the new UMass global name, making sure as this transition goes forward, that that stable communication and, and these students who aren't necessarily on campus understanding what this means for them. Can you talk a little bit about some of the strategy there to make sure that learners are staying engaged with the institution and also what opportunities potentially having that UMass name there could do for connecting learners to their institution?
2: Yeah, so that's a great, great question. And, you know, the first step is is we, we took a little time and, and it was most obvious at uh, commencement this year. So I've done four commencements already as the interim chancellor very exciting times at commencement to to be with students. And, and that's where you really see the outcome uh, of the work that all of the faculty and staff have put in to support our students. And at commencement, the reason I bring it up, we had the opportunity to uh, receive a degree that's either from Brandman uh, or from UMass Global, because many of the students were able to start it as Brandman and finished as UMass Global. So we had some flexibility there. And it was fun to watch to see which of the Degree folders they picked up one that was blue, uh, that was UMass Global, and one that was maroon, that was Brandman, and it was interesting. The undergraduates clearly had who had been there for quite some long time, to- a time had had a preference towards finishing under the Brandman name, uh, and the undergraduate students who had been there for a shorter period of time, much uh, some of that under UMass Global we're actually more attracted to the Umass global brand so we've got a lot to understand about the brand but it's going to be uh, we want to leave some some openness during the during the transition the Umass brand is very very strong and much has a much broader reach than brandman across the country especially in new england and the northeast and we have a a real appetite to expand our presence and awareness uh, in those spaces some of the strategies is to, um, you know, it's obviously the, the traditional media strategies to get our name out as UMass Global and change the identity from Brandman. But I think more importantly is to, to build stronger relationships with employers, recognizing the value of the brand with employers and our partners. And most of our students as working adults are looking for better job opportunities. And we're uh, very focused on workforce relevance of the degree itself and the reputation. So we think we can leverage that in our direct relationships with partners. We're uh, you know, we are um, selected partner with Guild, who gets, who has, as for years, uh, gotten us in contact and and created a pipeline for students coming from both Walmart and Disney and other industries. Uh, We're going to expand those efforts outside of that to include a lot of uh, employers on the East Coast, which allows us to really expand the the brand recognition or or our student recruitment in areas where the brand recognition is high.
0: Can you talk a little bit about building that brand recognition at a new institution, but also um, reaching learners across the country, expanding outside of states where UMass Global already reaches? especially in you know, the marketplace that you operate in in U.S. Global, um, UMass Global operates in, uh, which is competitive. You've got Purdue Global, you've got new global institutions popping up throughout the country. Uh, what digital strategies or other strategies do you have to connect with learners um, outside of the imprint right now? Yeah, I, I think
2: going back to uh, uh, rather than a, a B2C uh, model, a B2B model with our partners, you know, really trying to tailor the credential itself to the needs of the workforce. Uh, and that means looking at stackable opportunities for truly integrated professional development at, at the workforce level uh, and being able to stack those things into credentials that are uh, eventually more recognizable and valuable like degrees and, and certificates for specific professions. But I don't think uh, we've done a very good job across the sector in working really closely with industry to make sure that we're producing the types of students uh, that they are find most valuable uh, in their in their industry and when we're able to do that I think it's uh, we're going to be that's going to be the differentiator uh, is getting to a smaller grain size of a credential so it has some immediate value to students uh, in the workforce and is recognized by their employer but stacks towards a a larger credential and we haven't done that very well we tend tend to think of things in terms of Carnegie units and and credit hours that are eligible for Title IV funding Uh, but we need to step back and make sure that conversations we're having with employers are meaningful conversations that lead to the kind of credential that's necessary uh, to move, move students forward. And then we've got a better product to, to market and be competitive with.
0: Can you talk a little bit about, I, I, I love talking about stackable credentials. Uh, I, I think it's really interesting, but for working adults um, and and professional adults, um, can you talk a little bit about communicating with them and you talked a little bit about shaping these credentials so they are really relevant, but how do you convince learners who are used to that system, where it's Carnegie units and, and taking courses and that kind of thing, that these opportunities aren't just something that's convenient for them, but it's also something that's really going to help them along in their career?
2: I think that's a, that's a million dollar question. It was how do we change the language? And the, you know, we, we've, we've grown up with this language uh, a currency even, it's, it goes beyond the language of currency that we trade in in higher education, it's, it's Carnegie unit credit hours. And when we introduce new currencies, uh, it's almost like introducing Bitcoin. You know, this is a whole new strange way of thinking about the value of a credential. And, and many overlook the fact that our responsibility is not only supporting students and serving students and enhancing their learning and their growth. It's also credentialing and, and vetting what they know and can do. And we've been doing that using a very traditional model for for, for quite some time. And so introducing this new way of, of thinking about micro-credentials and badges and a, a new currency is challenging. So first you have to get the, the terminology straight uh, and and get them to recognize this. But we also have some technological problems even with our transcripts and our registrar's office and how we think about documenting, you know, smaller level credentials. And, you know, historically we've kept those things on the side in what we used to call continuing education or extended education. And they never really migrated in a meaningful way to the transcript. And students had a hard time navigating what smaller units of credit, micro credentials, would stack towards So, giving them that map that shows them how things stack and where they lead and constantly working with them to understand the value is one way. The other way is a clear recognition of the value in the workforce, you know. So, if there are opportunities to get to that next level of a job based on the acquisition of a micro-credential, and eventually that micro-credential is going to stack into a Carnegie unit credit that's going to be valuable to you towards a degree, It's linking all those pieces together and communicating that and it's not going to be easy. I mean, it's it's, we understand credit hours and the acquisition of a a larger grain size of of credential. And we're going to have to constantly stay at that and work with employers to communicate from two different angles on the value of that. And I think there's some taxonomy um, emerging that's going to be helpful. Uh, These are essentially interoperable learning records at a smaller grain size.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's kind of uh, making sure that those translate in a way, those those learner records being being part of all this. Um, Another part of the value proposition uh, is obviously how the institution can support students. Um, As chancellor, can you talk a little bit about some of the digital services and supports that can help these learners moving forward and any plans to expand those or update them, anything on the horizon?
2: So it's clear that the next generation of communication coming from institutions has to improve and has to, be much more on demand than it is now i mean so the expectation for real-time communication through you know website based um, chat bots and um, automated nudging all of those things are really necessary and i think the key is that We need to be able to not only respond in in real time with on-demand types of responses, we need to be proactive in reaching out the other way. We're getting better at responding to students um, when they need something and they open and they raise their hand, Uh, but we also need to get much better at um, recognizing When somebody should be raising their hand and raising their hand is kind of a good analogy because that's what we we can do it on zoom Uh, you can raise your hand um, in, in a traditional classroom you're supposed to raise your hand and be respectful but we shouldn't wait for people to raise their hand we should be having enough data and predictive analytics enough of a microscope into the learning experience that we can predict when somebody should be raising their hand Uh, and reach out to them in a much more proactive fashion. And this is where nudging, I think, has a lot of promise. So when you think about automated nudges that allow you to reach out and give specific information to students that are just in time uh, to help them, then I think that's where we're going to to be able to deploy these things at scale. Uh, Because a great advisor who has a one-on-one relationship with a student or a great instructor who has a one-on-one relationship with a student over a long period of time knows when they should be raising their hand uh, because they've learned that over a long period of time if we get to the point and when we get to the point where you can use flowing data from the learning management system from the student information system integrated into a queue that actually says this person needs a nudge that they're not putting enough effort into this particular exercise and this other person needs a nudge who's putting extraordinary effort it basically says we need to get you a tutor because you're not understanding this particular concept. You've been doing great. You've been working hard. Things are going well. But this math concept is really tricking, tripping you up. Why don't you spend 30 minutes with a tutor? You know, being able to automate that and get to that level of on-demand outreach, not in, not taking and receiving requests from from students is going to be critical to the to the ability to do this at scale, because it's not economically feasible to do it at the scale we want to be at with individual advisors who are spending significant amounts of time trying to learn and know the students. That model was successful uh, for some people for many years, but our students, as, as working adults, uh, they don't have the time for that either. I mean, so we don't have the, you know, the capacity to deploy that and they don't have the time to develop those kind of relationships, but we can see those things uh, being simulated now in a lot of different ways with the technology and the data systems that underlie that technology.
0: Again, that was David Andrews, Chancellor for UMass Global. The Cutting Edge Podcast is available at cuttingedgepodcast.com and everywhere you get your podcasts. This show is a product of Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. Until next time, I'm Emily Banforth.